The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good morning to you, Kobus. Good morning. Kobus, today we're going to be talking about the U.S.-China-Africa relationship, and boy, is this relationship in flux today, in part because of what's been going on between the United States and China, but also because of the recent election of President-elect Joe Biden. Now, for the purposes of our discussion today, we are going to refer to Biden as the president-elect. I know that he's being contested by the Trump administration, and that is still an unresolved issue, but for the academic exercise that we're in today— Joseph Biden is, in fact, the president-elect of the United States. And I just say that not as any value judgment, but that's just the operating principle that we're going to use. So that's my disclaimer there. The headline in Foreign Policy magazine was Biden and Harris's Reset for Africa. And that's so much when it involves the, the U.S. foreign policy related to Africa, China is not far behind at all. Now, that goes back, if you recall, to the 2008 speech at the Heritage Foundation by then National Security Advisor John Bolton, where he mentioned, I think it was 14 times he mentioned the word China in a speech about prosper Africa and U.S. foreign policy in Africa. So that gives you an indication of where we are. That is the exact kind of thing that African stakeholders are hoping the United States will do when they talk about a reset. Kobus, one of the things that I saw in the aftermath right away after the announcement that Joe Biden had won the presidency was this anticipation that we will see this reset, this hope that the United States will get back engaged again. And one of the most interesting comments, and I'd like to get your take on this, was there's a sense that in many African countries, especially in South Africa, that the relationship has tilted too far towards the Chinese. And there is this hope that with a more engaged United States that's going to rejoin the World Health Organization, not necessarily cause problems with the World Trade Organization, stop putting sanctions on countries like Rwanda and, and Cameroon and bring them back into a go on these other issues, and not obviously refer to African countries as assholes, that it would help balance out the relationships that a lot of countries have with China and the U.S. What's your sense on that, Kobus? You know, kind of, I, I can definitely see where where those commentators are coming coming from. Um, I think that there's two there's two issues. You know, kind of on the one hand, I think that the the U.S. Has, has seemed very disengaged with Africa um, for you know for the last four years, and I think longer than that. Um, and I think everyone would like a more engaged U.S., depending on what form of engagement that is. Um, if it's if it's a very development-focused engagement, I think African stakeholders would all be very happy with that. Because I think at the moment a lot of them are worried that that they are kind of backed into kind of relations with China because there are so few other options um and you know if if you know if you have so few options then you then you're not in a particularly strong negotiating position with China so i think everyone would want china to to stay on board um but they would like uh, you know kind of a, a stronger american position to 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 give them the leverage to 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 uh, you know drive a harder bargain with china um i think the the the, the bigger question for me is whether 
whether there's really, um, you know, kind of bandwidth in the U.S. for that kind of engagement. Um, because what we're looking for, is, I think what Africans are looking for, that is, is more than just a kind of an, you know, an increase in aid. You know, PEPFAR, for example, is fantastic. But, you know, what 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 Africa needs is is proactive investment direction, I think. Um, and the, the question is whether not only the U.S. government, but also U.S. companies really, you know, kind of are, are interested in that. Well, we're going to bring you a couple of perspectives on this story over the next few weeks, and we're going to try and come at it from different angles. So in a, next week, we're going to be talking to some experts in Washington, D.C. for the U.S. view, the institutional view from within the Beltway. And today we're going to try and get a more global view and especially try to understand how the Chinese are seeing this again through an American lens. And for that, we're thrilled to have back on the show again Joshua Eisenman, who's an associate professor of politics at the University of Notre Dame's Keough School of Global Affairs. And he's also the author of China and Africa, A Century of Engagement that he wrote back in 2012 with Ambassador David Shin, another good friend of the show, uh, who's over at George Washington University. And most importantly, most importantly, now that book became published or is just published in uh, Chinese edition, Zhongguo Yu Feizhou, that just came out in Hong Kong and was published by the Chinese University of Hong Kong Press. Wow, Josh, congratulations and thank you very much for taking the time to join us and a very good morning to you from Indiana. Well, great to be with you guys. Thanks for having me back. It's great to have you on the show. The timing couldn't be better. You are somebody who sits atop the viewpoints of what's going on in China. You follow events closely in Africa, and obviously you're in the United States. You have a chance to talk with stakeholders on all sides of this. Uh, let's start with an open question about where we are. This is still a very fluid process right now in the United States. Joe Biden doesn't have access to the presidential daily briefings that a normal transition would allow him for. The president is challenging the election, so this is not a, a done deal yet. The Chinese government, for its part, has not congratulated Joe Biden. They're holding off a little bit. So let's kind of think about this in the U.S.-Africa-China nexus. Where do you think we are right now? Is it a reset, or is it going to be something, as Kobus talked about, maybe that it might have to hold back a little bit, given that there are other priorities confronting the incoming Biden administration? What's your take? Well, that's a doozy, right? Uh, thanks for starting me off with a with a goodie. I appreciate it. Um, so, I, I think that you know, when I look at a situation we find ourselves in now as Americans, I'm reminded of the movie Wall Street, uh, where the uh, the older gentleman comes over to Bud Fox, uh, who's soon to be arrested, and says, "You know, man looks into the abyss, and it's at that point that man finds his character." And I think that's where we are right now, because if we have a duly elected president who is unable to take office, then we are in the abyss. Uh, we, are, we are no longer anywhere near our traditions. We are moving in directions we've never moved before. And so to me, it's at this point that American character is going to step forward. And we saw it on full display with the amazing performance uh, in county after county of the United States where they counted votes, um, sometimes under duress, but they did so and they did a fantastic job. And to my knowledge, none of the lawsuits have, have gotten any traction yet. Now, that may change. I'm not predicting future. I'm just telling present. Uh, so, you know, I think we are getting our character and uh, the irony of this whole situation, maybe it be the, uh, the jurists and the lawyers that save us from the abyss. Uh, that would be an irony indeed. But um, we are uh, right now, I think, uh, working the process through legal channels. And it's at the point that it becomes extra legal that that I would be concerned. I don't think we're there yet. 
Um, but I have to tell you the truth. Yesterday, I, I was at a, a small Chinese restaurant in Indiana, and the uh, uh, the Chinese immigrant uh, who owns the uh, there, very nice lady, I spoke to many times, um, was refusing to wear a mask and chased me out of there, telling me, you know, uh, you're not going to throw her president out of the office. So it was. You know, America is divided, America is polarized, but there is calm in America. And I think that's important because a lot of folks were concerned there wouldn't be. And while people uh, are certainly concerned and elevated in their anxiousness, I haven't seen the kind of um, kind of uh, frightening violence that I think people had been most fearing. And so I think that's to the good. Um, in terms of the, the question about China-Africa relations, I think that the work you guys uh, did and put out the other day is quite accurate. I, I just can't imagine that China-Africa relations is going to rise uh, – excuse me, Africa is going to rise very high on the priority list at this point given the amount of pressure the United States is under. I mean we are uh, – if you look at the amount of children who are going to bed uh, with hungry bellies in the United States, it's it's, it's really un, – un, Unsightly. It's it's it shouldn't be happening in a country as rich as ours, and so that makes it very hard, I think, for people to see beyond the borders. And so, you know, you've got a president who's talking more globally, but maybe the the again the irony of the situation is the, the we are in a moment which we we are kind of forced to be America first, uh, whether we like it or not, and whether we want to or not, because of the nature of the pandemic that is raging in our country right now. Um, and this also talks to whether or not we can really do what Copas talked about a moment ago and compete with China in, in Africa. And I don't, I think that was never really in the cards, um, in, in part because of the way the America works. Um, it's hard to get companies who are listed on the stock exchange, who have to answer to stakeholders to go and uh, make investments and, and, and put risk into uh, uh, places that are – that returns are, are uncertain. And China has had, uh, for political reasons, uh, the ability to push its companies to do that in ways that I just don't think uh, market-driven uh, firms can do. Uh, uh, certainly, if we think about infrastructure development, returns to infrastructure development tend to be quite low. And we in the United States uh, could do a lot to improve our infrastructure. So um, I, I, I don't see the kind of competition uh, emerging for a variety of reasons that would satisfy African friends in terms of having a real competitor to China, uh, you know, beyond the, maybe services, um, consulting services and things of that ilk, which are important. But in terms of building the hard infrastructure that I, I that as far as I understand, Africa is still in need of. I just I don't see American firms being an important part of that. What is your perspective um, in, in terms of a China watcher on how the Chinese see the current um, process in the US? Like, you, you know, I, I was surprised, you know, because of, because of um, you know, President Trump's um, rhetoric on China has been so combative and because of the trade war. I was surprised at how much support he enjoys on Chinese social media. Um, so I was wondering what you make of that and then also what what you make of the, the fact that they haven't congratulated President-elect Biden yet and, you know, what just generally what China's making of the current situation in the U.S. Well, you know, as as you both know, reading the tea leaves in Beijing, especially from Indiana, is is, is a difficult task. Um, but in, in, but that's what we we have to do almost no matter where we stand, unless we have some special access. And so I can do my best. Um, I think that there was a feeling, um, and I believe Eric was living in China at the time, that uh, Donald Trump would be somebody that China could work with. Um, at the beginning, this was the feeling, right? Um, when they met at Mar-a-Lago, and there was there was a, dis a kind of feeling that there was a, a rhetoric during the campaign 
which was very anti-China, but that the Trump uh, White House could be worked with. And I think that that persisted maybe uh, the bloom on the rose for, for about a year or so. But then uh, I think China quickly came to realize that that wasn't the case uh, and uh, had to kind of work with what they could, um, realizing that America, uh, the leadership of the United States was not really going to engage them in the kind of neoliberal thousand flowers bloom engagement that it had. In fact, it was speaking, advo- you know, advocating against that kind of engagement um, and, and you know, targeting uh, people who uh, uh, in some senses had gone beyond the letter of the law in terms of expanding their engagement, being part of things like the Thousand Talents program and targeting these kinds of programs. And, and I support those targeting of those programs, don't get me wrong, especially if they're nefarious or untoward in any way. Um, but it certainly created kind of a climate uh, which made it harder uh, to to look into the future and see the U.S.-China relationship growing, um, you know, both on a person-to-person and a government-to-government level. And I do think now when you look at the, the Biden group, and I think the Chinese probably see this too, uh, because they, they have, as you know, Dang An, they have files, they know people, they've engaged with many of these people, including Pre- Vice President Biden for decades. They, they know his team, I'm sure, quite well. And so they, they, they look and I think they, they see, at least this is what I see, three general typologies within the China group. You've got the people who were kind of wary of China all along and now feel somewhat vindicated. Um, these had not been the majority of people within the Democratic Party. In fact, they had been a, a distinct minority. Um, but I think those those folks um, have been proven to be you know, correct, uh, whether we like it or not. Um, then there are folks who um, were very, very strongly pro-engagement, but have come around to see that that policy had uh, some fundamental flaws and needed to be readdressed and and altered um, in a way that better served U.S. interests. And then a third group, which is uh, I've heard folks talk about as the keepers of the flame, um, those folks who would just like to continue things the way they were. Thank you very much. Um, Kissinger was right, and and if any, and, and even if he's wrong, this is how I'm, you know, my livelihood. And I think that these three groups are now trying to figure out, you know, who's going to sit in what position and who's going to have. You know, you know, in what important positions within the, the incoming administration. And I think that how those positions shape out, who sits in what chair, is very important for China. It's very important for the U.S.-China relationship to see how it's going to move forward. Because I could very easily imagine a scenario, and this is not what's being talked about now, um, Although some people on the on the very hard right uh, um, are talking about this in the United States as a criticism, possibly of the Trump uh, of the incoming Biden administration, Marsha Blackburn and others have said, but I do see a possibility that you have a tra- a slow uh, a slow gradual shift kind of back to not exactly what we had, but something that resembles it, um, which is to say that you might come in with a more harder, stronger, and then. Uh, over time, as kind of a, a, a evolutionary, almost so slow you wouldn't even necessarily notice it, um, and then you might find yourself four years later, not back where we began, but wondering what has changed necessarily. And I think that that's a concern, and I think it would be politically dangerous in the U.S. if that were to happen, because most Americans were not on board with the U.S.-China relationship as it had existed, and Donald Trump exploited that to his political advantage and continues to do so. Um, so we have to be very aware of this. And I think China is also aware of this. Um, and I think they're they're watching to see who's sitting in what position and who they can reach out to and, and, and who they think is somebody that they can work with and who they don't. 
Yeah, I mean, you you make a very interesting point about what's needed, but as you've mentioned, that over the course of the past four years, a lot has changed in the U.S.-China relationship to the point where if you want to be successful in Washington, you have to be on the side of, of being anti-China. It just seems that way, that that is the mood in Washington. There's really no more of the, you know, back in the old days, guys like Orville Schell at the Asia Society were all about engagement and all about, as you said, the American public moved on from that. So no matter what Biden does, it's probably still going to be a tough line on China. And that brings up the question of Africa here, because uh, two of the smartest uh, Africa watchers that I know in, in Washington, Aubrey Ruby at the Atlantic Council and Judd Devermont at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, they've been going on for years talking about how it's so destructive for the United States to look at the relationship in Africa with China as a zero-sum game. And one of the things that they're hoping for is that at least that zero-sum competition or that mindset goes away. Aubrey Ruby was quoted in the Financial Times saying, I don't think they will see everything that China does as an American loss. That's what she's hoping for, and I think that's very interesting. I gave three recommendations to uh, the incoming Biden administration in a column. Just a, I wrote a, 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 a dear, dear Joe letter. And I want to run these these by you and get your take on them. I said, recommendation number one, you personally have to get in the game. And, and I was inspired by this one from a Twitter exchange that we had about how the United States generally focuses on large powers. So when a U.S. president engages Africa, they'll talk to the Nigerians, they'll talk to the Kenyans, they'll talk to the South Africans, but they never talk to the Malawians and the Togolese. And this is one of the differences with China that Xi Jinping finds a way, and I don't know how he does it, but he finds five minutes in his schedule to give the Malawian president a call. And I think that would be a really important first step. And I think it's important now in the transition that he make a phone call to an African leader just to show that he's engaged. And it doesn't take anything to do that. Number two, my recommendation for the incoming Biden administration, stop trying to compete with the Chinese. The United States should find the areas that it does better. You mentioned this, Josh. Uh, what I pointed out was education. Schools like Notre Dame are some of the best in the world. Africa is a young population that is dying to be educated and loves education and really brings some of these online tools into Africa from schools like Notre Dame. That would be a, a real win for the United States. Our universities are way better than what's in China. I mean, no competition. Uh, number two, services. We're not a manufacturing economy, but yet when you talk to people at the U.S. Exim Bank and you talk to the guys at the DFC, the, the New Development Finance Corporation, they really talk about this. We're going head-to-head -head with the Chinese. And it's just like, as you pointed out, it's ridiculous. We're not going to go head-to-head -head with the Chinese. But we are really good in services, and we are high-tech services, professional services. That's where we should bring some of that. So the idea is that there's a piece of infrastructure that Chinese have built. We can then start laying on business plans. We can start laying on all these different services on top of that infrastructure so that an African country can best monetize that investment, repay the Chinese loan and whatnot. Finally, people. Um, we have this amazing connection in the United States through the, the African diaspora, the African-American population, this connection with Africa that certainly China doesn't have and a lot of other countries don't have. That being said, it's a complicated history that goes from slavery to assholes, as we talked about. It's not an easy relationship, but it's something that if we foster through Peace Corps, through some of the other programs that we've done so successfully over the years, that's a big competitive advantage. Finally, the last thing, and again, I just want to put these out there for our discussion, that the U.S. foreign policy towards 
Africa should be focused on one thing and one thing only, jobs. That's it. Jobs, 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 jobs. Jobs for Africans, jobs for Americans, but focused on jobs. Forget about all the other stuff. If you focus on jobs, you will get the soft power benefits. You will get the diplomatic benefits that come from it. So a lot of points that I put out there. Pick anyone that you want, Josh, and run with it. Well, those are great. And I would say that I'm with you on three of the four. And the fourth, um, uh, it's not that I'm not with you. I just I can't see how it could get done. So let me start at the top. You are entirely right. And as you know, the Chinese foreign minister's first visit every year, I believe since 1984 or 83, um, has been to an African country. Yep. Every year. Every year. And that, every year, that says something. And they notice that, and that's important, you know. Um, in, in an age where uh, we all sit behind our Zoom and, and our phone and our Twitters and everything like this, seeing somebody in the flesh means all the more. And this is something that I think China does really well. And they've, and this is almost something uh, I would almost say it's cultural China. You know, going back to Confucius, you have things like it's it's a it's a great thing to welcome friends from afar, right? This concept of of seeing people, of being with people, uh, and that being important. And I'm not saying Americans aren't like that, but I'm saying that the host diplomacy aspect of it, um, it it's something China puts a lot on. Right. Oh, it's you know there are sayings like uh, the first time we're friend uh, we meet we're strangers the second time we're friends. I mean, people who visited China have heard these things. There's a um, a method to the madness, and I think China does a great job. And I completely agree with you. Um, it, for very little, I believe, for very little effort, um, the the Biden administration could get a lot of traction by simply picking up the phone um, and then putting together. Um, you know, at some point, doesn't have to be first, second, or third, uh, but you know, a trip to Africa and showing up and and having a small country, um, you know, on the list and, uh, you know, how to choose that, you know, there, there, there are wiser Africanists than me to figure out the schedule. But on the first one, we are completely in agreement. <clears throat> and on the second one, um, uh, you know, we are also in complete agreement that is uh, to not try to co- uh, compete with China. And I remember uh, during his confirmation hearings, John Kerry said, we are going to get in the game and compete with China in Africa. And I remember I actually attended a, a conference and I, I showed the, the audience that video and I said, this is going to come back and bite us because we cannot actually compete with China because that's not the way supply chains work. That's not the way this environment works. I mean, the, the raw materials, for example, minerals, we don't buy much of them. China buys more of them, and then they use these things to produce products that are sold all around the world, including back to Africans. I, I know you know very well. So the idea that we're going to, quote, get in the game and compete, to me, it's more of a political statement, and it, and, and it, and it rings hollow. So what services then? Well, consulting services, accounting services, high-tech services that are not tied to a um, – an Orwellian super state. Um, these are these are things that we do well. And and going to your key point, and this is where I'm going to do a little egregious promotion. The Keogh School of Global Affairs is a new school at Notre Dame. We're the we're the first new school in 150 years to be created. We're a school of global affairs, and um, and we focus on development, and we focus on uh, advocacy work, and we focus on uh, integral human development. Um, and this is, I think, something you're not going to find if you study in China. But the problem is this. The Chinese embassy does a great job in promoting its programs, in, in, in reaching out to Africans and helping them understand what's available to them and getting them on board. And the U.S. embassy is not going to promote Notre Dame for us. They're not going to promote our universities. So it takes that extra bit of effort. Like we've got – we have scholarships available. 
Okay, uh, we have things available, but you got to go to our website. You got to find it because we are not going to centrally. We're not going to come to you and knock on your door. Uh, we're not going to get a list from the government of who are the people we want to contact. You know, we're, this is not how America works. And it's because that's not how we work that it's going to take a little bit of initiative. But all of the African listeners, I want to let you know, there are huge opportunities for you in the United States. Get out there, apply to those schools, and do not be uh, dissuaded. And I and I feel like you, if you've got a good uh, candidacy, I feel like you're going to get uh, more traction than you might expect. Um, and then when it comes to the, the, uh, uh, the people, I think this is another really important aspect because – um, the, pe- quote, people-to-people diplomacy that China does is often almost always government-driven. And it's better described, as David Shambaugh called it, as foreign-focused propaganda work most of the time. Now, not all the time. There are uh, certainly Chinese people who go to Africa and, and, and become part of African society. But when we, or in terms of intermarriage and friendship and everything, I don't want to overstate the case. But I do think when we're talking about people-to-people diplomacy, as the Chinese government describes it, this is by and for the party. Uh, it's it enhances the image of the Chinese government. It's intended to do so. And that is a fundamentally different thing than the NBA and Manchester United and hip hop music, which are coming from the American people, coming from the, you know, the British people, which are, uh, you know, and I think that when we look at the strengths that America has, it's, it is, you know, government programs like the Peace Corps have been successful. But I think um, what would be great is to really build the, the kind of natural friendships and relationships um, that that build understanding and communication um, that are not uh, a kind of government-driven uh, uh, but are instead very natural uh, uh, in terms of the way they accrue. And I think that's where America does have an important advantage because for whatever it's worth, Americans are tend to be seen, and you tell me if I'm wrong, as pretty genuine and heartfelt, sometimes almost blinkered in their optimism sometimes. But but they tend to be seen as genuine, not uh, overly secretive or reserved. And I think that this bodes well for us um, when it, it's, you know, we're happy to tell you about our life and, and what goes on. You know, we, we, you know, I'm not trying to say every American is of a certain type, but, um, you know, there's, there's something that comes with growing up and living in a free society that I think makes you more open and willing to discuss um, things that might, in China, for example, be considered sensitive topics. But the only place I would necessarily push back is on the issue of jobs, because I don't know how you create jobs in another person's country. Um, I'm not even sure how exactly, I mean, you could do that in your own country. I think that's more of a direct, but how do American, how can America create jobs in Africa? That's the, it's not that I disagree. Create, it's just, I don't oh, understand. Hold on. No, 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 no. I, I can be very clear on that, which is we have massive, massive subsidies to our agriculture that makes it difficult for developing countries to import produce and raw materials into the United States. Sugar, bananas, go through the list of it. Uh, those special interests and those lobbies really protect those interests. So by taking down some of the subsidies, which is a hard thing to do, don't get me wrong, and that's going to be, you know, taking down agricultural subsidies in the United States, Europe, and Japan is not something that can be done quickly or easily. But the idea is that fostering trade deals and what that really are in the interest of Africans to generate jobs, that's the way you can do it. And I think there's a lot that can be said for that, rather than what I think we're seeing out of the free trade agreement that's being negotiated with Kenya, which has a lot of bias towards the United States. That's, again, what I'm talking about. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. Now, now let me just pose the, the kind of two-level game here to you. Given that 
Donald Trump is able to gain so much popularity talking about America first and, and tearing down trade deals, I would be concerned that there might be blowback on that, which would not be insignificant. Yeah. So it's not that such a thing is wrong. No, I, I don't no, disagree I don't, at you're, all. You're, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And it's it's in this current political environment, even Biden may not be able to do that. Uh, so, with this Senate. <laughs> you know, because his member, his, his coalition is not that keen on trade deals either. I mean, Hillary Clinton ran on pulling out of TPP. So AGOA is coming up in what COVID I think is 2025. Yes. Um, and it's not a guarantee that AGOA gets passed through in its current form. There's there's no not a guarantee in the current US climate. Go ahead, Cobus. I wanted to ask you a slightly different question. Um, the it, it seems to me that that there's a there's a trap for for kind of US engagement with China, the trap for the US, which is the 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 narrative in China um, that everything that the US does is trying to contain Chinese growth. Um, you know, and, and I think I think it's a trap because because in um, you know one, one frequently hears I think from from American speakers that that the 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 question that you know that China threatens U.S. global dominance. You, you know I can see how that how that you know we need to take on China because it threatens U.S. global dominance. How that plays quite well within the U.S. But from the outside, it devalues many American messages in the world, right? Kind of so it's then very easy to say, for example, um, you know complaints about human rights in China is just simply a way. To try and contain Chinese growth, and we we and and that that narrative really has traction in the rest of the world. Um, so, for example, the like my own president, um, Cyril Ramaphosa, last year said in in reaction to pressure from the Trump administration that South Africa should should drop Huawei. He said, "Ah, oh, you know, this is just about the American being being jealous that they couldn't get to 5G first. Like, how how is there is there a way? Do you, do you foresee that that some kind of like nimble footing that the Biden administration can use to keep calling out things that they don't like in China, um, like, for example, human rights abuses, without falling into this particular trap where it, it essentially devalues everything they say? Well, that's a, I mean, that's a great question, uh, Kobus. I think that uh, one of the advantages the Biden administration has is it doesn't have the, the problem of hypocrisy that the Trump administration did, which is when, when you're over here, you know, cra you know, calling for harsh crackdowns on domestic protests in your country. It's hard to then turn to China and and say, well, what you're doing in Hong Kong is wrong, and that so so that uh, hollow that uh, echoes somewhat hollow, and so therefore that because I I would expect the Biden administration wouldn't do that. They can I think speak from a a moral. Uh, moral high ground. Um, they don't have, they're not separating children at the border. They don't have, you know, a variety of different uh, questions that then call into question their hypocrisy. And, and China is great at this, taking a, a handful of incidents um, and then saying, well, you're doing this, so pay no attention to the million Uyghurs uh, in the cages, right? So they're great at it in, in terms of the way they they uh, can manipulate it within the press. So you saw this with Abu Ghraib um, and, and the problems there, which are terrible, but on a much smaller scale. Um, you know, even uh, Guantanamo Bay, you're dealing with a few hundred people here. Um, and, and uh, you know, it's, a, it's just on a different scale. And size matters when it comes to human rights abuses. We shouldn't we shouldn't think um, that 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 harm is to one person is equal to harm to millions, right? Um, and and that's an important thing to to notice. But by doing away with that hypocrisy, I think it gives them a a, a better position to stand on. But I also think <clears throat> that China's position on this really um, rings hollow to me. 
Um, throughout my life, I've seen so many efforts that the United States has undergone to help build China and help China become what it is today. Everything from protecting the sea lanes to investing in the companies to the massive trade relationship. And, and we shouldn't forget how big this trade relationship is. The U.S.-China trade bilaterally in one month is more than U.S. excuse me, China-Africa trade with all 54 African countries for a year. That is how massive it is. It's the largest trading relationship in the history of the world, and that is because the U.S. has opened its markets to China. And then education. Hundreds of thousands of Chinese students have been educated in our country. So um, if this is containment, um, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, the Soviet Union wouldn't recognize it. Um, we have opened our country to China, and I think that is where uh, Americans feel uh, hurt. They feel that they have been led down the primrose path, that they were promised a more open and free China, and that is not as what happened. And so I think that there's a great bit of disappointment there. Um, and then not only do you not get the, on, the open and free China you had been promised by your own policymakers as well as Chinese friends, but you then get blamed for trying to hold China back, and you get to be the boogeyman all the time. Now, I'm not trying to say the U.S. is a perfect country, done everything right all the time and, and helped China all along the way. But I can tell you that by defending the sea lanes, investing in China, educating Chinese students and trading with them openly, we have helped create the China you see today. And if you ask about human rights, never forget that picture of Brent Scowcroft in July 1989, a month after the crackdown on the students and, and everyone else in, in China uh, for democracy, toasting Deng Xiaoping. So the, the American administration has not been, unfortunately, as 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 forward-leaning on human rights um, as it would might we might want to think they were. And so, you know, now what we see in Hong Kong and, 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 and in Xinjiang and in other places is in fact China saying, you know, we know you're not going to do anything. We know there's nothing you can do. And, and I've had discussions with my students on this issue, and we go all around, and, but then nobody can come up with an actual policy, and I think China knows that. Um, so the, the demonization of the U.S. is very helpful uh, for China politically, but I'm not sure that it, it rings true. Um, and the issue with uh, um, uh, 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 the, the way that African countries may see this uh, in terms of 5G, um, you know, I think that would be unfortunate because – um, it's, you know, China's simply put a lot into Huawei and ZTE on the continent. They were there. They have a huge advantage, a uh, head start. They've got an almost endless bankroll. Um, and it's just impossible to believe that the, the U.S. telecoms companies are going to compete with them. I, I think it's a bar that just can't be met because we're operating in a, a market-driven framework, and they're operating in a framework in which they have largesse from their government. It's just a different world. And so, uh, you know, I, I think that such comments are unfortunate because they don't take into consideration um, the fact that, you know, Huawei and uh, American companies are just not on an equal footing. I'm going to respectfully, and you and I go way back so I can do this, respectfully disagree with your assessment on the human rights situation in the United States, not again to defend what the Chinese are saying, but more that the oppression of African Americans throughout American history is not an isolated instance. The police brutality against African-Americans is not isolated, nor is the mass imprisonment that Joe Biden himself helped facilitate with the 1994 crime bill uh, an isolated instance. I mean, the fact is that the United States imprisons more of its population than any other country in the world, and the bulk of that are minorities. So I don't think the, I don't I don't I just don't see that as a as a Benghazi isolated instance. I think this is a real point of vulnerability. And this goes back in American history, uh, all the way back to the civil rights movement and during the Cold War. 
when the Soviets were taking advantage of this. And this was one of the motivations for Johnson to actually do something in civil rights because it was making the United States vulnerable to its enemies. And in Africa, people see what happens in the United States. And we still pretend on from our government officials when they talk to African stakeholders as if this isn't happening. It is just tone deaf beyond all imagination. I see Tibor Naj, the Assistant Secretary of State, talking about condemning police brutality in Nigeria, talking about not condemning you know, the free press in Zimbabwe and whatnot. And you're just thinking to yourself, are you not paying attention to what's actually going on in your own country? And I want to put that out there. That is mm -hmm. not whataboutism. That is actually identifying massive, massive un unfair treatment of large swaths of the U.S. population. Uh, so just, you know, again, just I, I just don't I think that's a, I don't know if you were going down that direction, but I think there is legitimate criticism of the United States on human rights that is above the U.S.-China fray. May I, may is, I respond yeah. to that? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So first, um, I, I do public diplomacy uh, for the U.S. State Department uh, in China. And uh, so last year in 2019, I gave a speech to hundreds of Chinese people at the U.S. Embassy, um, and I said just those words. My words were this. Um, we in the United States have imprisoned millions of our minorities, and it has caused us a scar within our society that um, that, that will not heal in my lifetime, and, and, it's, and it's awful, and do not go down that road. If you, if you want to imprison millions of your minorities as we have, be prepared to reap what we are sowing now, okay? So learn from our mistakes because we have done things that are terrible and wrong. And, and I also spoke about the percentages of African-American women uh, who are dying in childbirth and having problems compared to white women and how that is an, another indicator of this systematic disparities and oppressions within U.S. society. That is true, Eric, and there is you will get no gripe from me. However, I do think it is important to note that Black Lives Matter protests are large, they are all around the country. Nobody uh, uh, is disappeared into like some jail and gone forever. Um, you know, people may get arrested and then released. You know, almost simultaneously. Um, I, I think a lot of the problem the Trump administration has is they want to crack down harder, and they don't have the mechanisms to do that in a democracy. And so. Um, I think we do have to recognize everything that you have said that I have pre previously said, but at the same time, we cannot allow ourselves uh, a, a complete mirror imaging to believe that you know uh, all around the country in the United States we have peaceful protests um, and people go home to their families, and that that is just simply not something that is permissible in the People's Republic of China. And I think you would agree with that statement. And so 100%. I think it's important for us to, to to understand that America is vulnerable, that these are scars in our country that we should heal, and that. And then I think that Johnson was right, that this does open us up to criticism. But at the same time, we also have to understand it's not a complete mirror image either. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa China Reporting Project at Wits University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at WitsChinaAfrica or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. You know, kind of changing tack slightly, um, 
what what do you think are some of the the kind of areas of engagement with China that the that the the Biden administration will try to seek out? Um, one I I'm thinking of, but uh, you know, kind of this might be just me, my fantasy, um, is that you know, if a, a dem with a democratic administration, um, there's a lot more leeway to for cooperation on climate change. Um, you know, and, and I think in a lot of ways it makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, among others because China is such a massive producer of of things like solar cells. Um, do you foresee that kind of cooperation, uh, particularly in places like Africa, getting any kind of political oxygen in Washington under, under Biden? Or is it all going to be anti-China all the time? Hmm. Well, well, you know, Kobus, I think you're right to point to um, climate change as an issue of cooperation, especially um, on the surface, right? China has said um, it's going to reduce its, its carbon emissions, it's made pledges. Um, but let me tell you a story which I think is indicative of our problem. Um, I had a student, great student, fantastic student, from Chinese student, uh, who was doing a master's degree. And um, in the past, this student had uh, come from a very high coal-producing province and uh, was doing research for her uh, professor in her undergrad about uh, the coal production uh, in the province and was trying to get a, get a, you know, for his research, help, help him get a hold of it. So visited the top 10 uh, emitters in the province. Um, and got from them the numbers uh, on in terms of their emissions for their uh, coal-producing, uh, uh, you know, the, the the users of coal. What were their, what, how much coal did they use, and how much emissions did they produce, and then compared it to the numbers that the province reported to Beijing, and the top ten producers alone doubled what the province had been reporting. Now that research never made it out. It never, it never saw the light of day. Um, it was never published, um, and had I never met this student, I wouldn't know about it. But I think this is the problem, is that is how do you enforce, how do you monitor? Um, you know, we're in a situation where there's a huge trust deficit between the two countries, um, and, and so how, how can we be sure? Um, and I think that, you know, in, in one uh, a Japanese official once explained to me, um, getting a deal with us is really hard, but enforcing it is easy, and with the Chinese, it can be the opposite. You know, getting the deal is easy. And as anyone who's ever signed an MOU knows, only 10% of them come to fruition. So signing is easy. It's the enforcement that's hard. And so um, it's, I completely agree with you, Kobus. I think there's politically room for this. But whether or not, um, it, you know, it could easily be four years later and we say, we see a, a would-be uh, Trump, you know, whoever on the Republican side would be running would say, you, you bought a bill of goods from Beijing on, on climate change. We reduced our, our output. We reduced our economic activity. They did not. And, and you were played the fool. And so I think there's a political risk to some degree. And China has to find a way to convince the American side that, that, it, that there can be enforcement, that there can be trust, but verification and how to verify. I think is that's the biggest question is something like emissions. Um, in terms of other issues to cooperate on, I mean, you've got transnational crime and drug syndicates um, that are operating throughout the, the world and the U.S. and China um, could crack down on that. <laughs> they could do a much better job, I think, of enforcing um, and working together in terms of transnational crime. And I'm not talking about political crime here. I'm not talking about, um, you know, catching people who uh, uh, the Chinese government wants to find. I'm talking about catching criminals uh, involved in, in poisoning <laughs> the world. And I think that's something we could work together on uh, for sure. But uh, Kobus, stepping back and looking at this from a larger perspective, U.S. strategy towards China, I called it the Dandelion strategy, the Pugonin strategy. Let a thousand flowers bloom. 
And that looks very fruitful from one perspective. But when you look on one, another perspective, you see how very thin those stems were, and you see how very quickly they withered and went white. So I agree with you. We need three strong flowers that we can trust and we can work with China on, that we know that those are our uh, kind of bedrock engagements. Um, and I think if we can cultivate three strong ones, that is better than a thousand uh, um, a thousand dandelions any day. And so if climate change is one of those issues, if resolving our economic disparities, right, I think that China has to understand that the ongoing U.S.-China trade deficit is unsustainable, and it needs to be addressed in a bilateral sense, which was not the Trump administration's strategy. So if we could come up with an actual, not a, a a, a kind of roll of the dice or, a, or, or a, a hit or miss strategy, but actually come up with a strategy of how to create a sustainable U.S.-China economic relationship. I think that would be in both countries' mutual interest. But I think looming over all of this, I have to tell you, in Washington is what's going on in Xinjiang and Hong Kong. This looms over everything. It makes it very hard to be me right now, uh, very hard to, uh, to, 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 as Eric said at the beginning, very hard to be uh, on the pro-engagement side. That has shifted completely. When I grew up in Washington, going to college, you had to be pro-engagement or nobody would talk to you. Now it's the opposite. And I think that that has, been, uh, that has occurred because of what's happened in Hong Kong and Xinjiang, whereas people are basically saying, are you willing to defend this? And that leaves very little room for people like me who would love to see a U.S. China relationship that's that's on a better footing to make an argument um, because there's no argument to make um, at the point that we're dealing with human rights groups talking of genocide. It, it leaves no room for us to have a, a robust discussion on other issues. So that would I would implore Chinese friends to address that issue not from a public relations perspective, but to actually to to, to from a policy perspective. In fact, because I, I believe it would open space for their engagement with Western countries around the world, including the United States. And also the Taiwan issue is becoming more prominent in Washington as well. So I think that that's something that the Trump administration really put to the fore and I think will stay under the Biden administration. Kobus, just to your point, I think African government should keep those expectations about trilateral engagement really in check just to build a little bit on what Josh was saying. Bear in mind that three senators in particular have presidential aspirations in 2020, what we're looking at, 2024. Uh, so Marco Rubio, Tom Cotton, and Josh Hawley. All three of them have made their names as some of the most outspoken China hawks out there. And so anything that Biden's going to do that would foster engagement and the type of trilateral productive type of relationship that you're alluding to, I think is going to be swatted very, very hard down by them in the Senate. But also bear in mind, they have allies in Fox News and these other on the conservative right. And let's not forget that Donald Trump will still be an actor, even if he's not going to be president. He has 71, 72 million votes. A lot of people. He grew his coalition in over the past four years. That's very, very important. And that hawkish attitude, I think, will uh, will remain in Washington. Uh, Josh, let's close up our discussion talking about your book. You wrote the book back in 2012. It now just became uh, published. It just got published in Chinese in Hong Kong. What is the significance of this book being translated into Chinese? Is that a milestone? I mean, it was a big personal accomplishment for you, but is it important in terms of spreading the discourse into Chinese in Hong Kong and potentially even up onto the mainland? 
Oh, definitely. I, I do want to say one quick thing about your comment, Eric, which I think is important. My professor at SAIS, Mike Lampton, David Lampton, known as a very close friend of China, in May 2015, wrote a piece called The Tipping Point, in which he said, a tipping point in U.S.-China relations is upon us. Now, this is months before Donald Trump is even, a year before he's even elected. And I think that we have to we have to understand that the problems in U.S.-China relationship go beyond the Trump administration. They preceded it. And in fact, I see Donald Trump as a symptom of the problems in the U.S.-China relationship. So I, we shouldn't just see him as the cause. Um, these are causal Absolutely. arrows that go both No, no, no. I, you and I fully agree on that. Absolutely. Um, but in terms of your point uh, about the book, and I'm so proud about this book. I, I can't tell you. It's taken six years to put it out. Um, and and uh, the reason is because uh, Ambassador Shin and I um, both refused to change a word of it. It is a. Uh, we wanted to speak directly in our own voice to uh, Chinese academics, and and that's a process that's um, hard to do. If you go to Taiwan, you, you can't get it into the PRC, and so we looked for a mainland press that was at the top of and, and and willing to defend academic integrity. And the Chinese University of Hong Kong Press is at up there with the best presses I've ever dealt with. They are the they are an amazing professional team, and they did everything they could to ensure the highest quality of this book. And but working with Professor Wang Duanyong at uh, uh, Shanghai, Shanghai International Studies University, uh, a longtime friend and a, and a real expert in China-Africa relations who translated the book, was also just a fantastic experience for me. So um, I'm so proud of the translation that he did, which is so smooth. I mean, Chinese friends read it. They're like, this doesn't read like a translation. It reads like the book was written in Chinese. And to me, that was the greatest compliment. So for all of the Chinese listeners out there, um, I, I, I hope you can get a copy. It's available now. We, we The price is only 30 bucks, And um, it, it, it not only is a translation of a 2012 book, but it's updated to 2018. So it's an updated edition as well. So I'm really proud of it. Thanks for the promotion. Um, and and yeah. I hope people can enjoy it. Oh, it's a fantastic it. accomplishment. The book in Chinese is Zhongguo Yu Feizhou. We'll put a link to the, uh, the, the online store which you can buy it. It is in traditional characters. Uh, because it's printed in Hong Kong. It's not in simplified characters for the mainland. Uh, but it is really in interesting reading. I've read the English version of it, and I still use it as a reference book here now, eight years later. The only complaint I have about your book, I've got one complaint, and I say this all the time with all you academics. They're too freaking expensive. Other than that, it's great. But all these academic books are just hideously expensive. So uh, 30 bucks is a good deal. So congratulations on getting the publisher to come down on price. You know, not only that, Eric, but the new book Ambassador Shin and I are working on on China-Africa political and security relations, uh, it looks like we're going to get that at around 30 bucks too. So you get your wish. We're, we're bringing it down. Fantastic. That's great. So, well, Josh, thank you so much for joining us. Josh Eisenman is an associate professor of politics at the University of Notre Dame, uh, the Keough School of Global Affairs. If you're an African student and want a scholarship, there you go. The Keough School of Global Affairs is going to be your place. Look them up. As Josh said, there's opportunities out there. Josh, of course, is the author of China and Africa, A Century of Engagement. That's now in Chinese, as we just mentioned, Zhongguo Yufeizhou. Uh, Josh, again, thank you so much for taking the time. You're on Twitter. You're quite active. Let the folks know where they can find you. Yeah, it's uh, just Joshua underscore Eisenman. Okay, easy enough. We'll put links to the book, to Josh's uh, Twitter feed, and some of his writings. Uh, they're fascinating. And uh, so we're just really thrilled to have you back on the program. Really appreciate your time today. It was a great pleasure. Thanks so much, guys. 
Kobus, when we think about what the incoming Biden administration is going to face when it comes to Africa, I think Josh's point was right on the mark when he said this is not going to be a top priority in Washington. And and I think African stakeholders, once again, are going to have to dial down those expectations. Uh, another article that I wrote very quickly was about what to expect, what not to expect. Uh, let me just run those through very quickly. New, pragmatic, less ideological leadership. That means we're going to have new ambassadors. Lana Marks in South Africa, Kyle McCarthy in Nairobi. They're going to be gone. They're Trump acolytes. They will definitely be, be replaced by what I think and I anticipate to be more pragmatic, less ideological ambassadors. Mike Pompeo will be gone. Uh, so I think that will, will help a lot in terms of dialing down a lot of the tension in the China-Africa relationship because the, Mike Pompeo himself has been a uh, very focused on criticizing China. You'll see more engagement at critical multilateral institutions like the World Health Organization, the World Trade Organization, and the IMF. You and I talked about a couple weeks ago about the US objection to the Nigerian-American candidate to be the director general of the World Trade Organization. That's the kind of thing that I think will probably go away in a Biden administration. And then no reduction in US government spending at least for this year or 2021, it, we'll probably see those budgets maintained. Uh, they probably will not increase, but they will not decrease as well. So I think those are three things to expect in the incoming Biden administration as it relates to Africa. Yeah, well, you know, kind of, I think all three of those would be would be welcomed um, in Africa. I, I think what 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 many African um, leaders would would also want is just you know kind of greater engagement with with development um and as you say jobs of jobs um the more the more focus on you know kind of on this this form of engagement i think the the better it will be i think at the, at the moment the the danger probably or one of the dangers is is that america could just keep losing relevance in africa you know kind of uh, an america that 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 is only for example interested in security engagement you know the, i think there there is obviously there is a lot of scope for that engagement but you know it misses it misses the mark in in terms of i think where the continent is is headed which is which is very focused on development um so i think in, in the end that that lens will end up being the way that that all of the relationships are judged um, not not only with the us but but also with china and with europe i think the reason why it's development and military that dominate the us agenda in africa is in part because those are where the powerful lobbies are in washington there is not a strong Africa lobby that's trying to diversify the relationship the same way that other constituencies have very powerful lobby groups that are influencing Congress, the State Department, and the White House. So long as it's the the Pentagon driving a lot of this and also the what we call, you know, the Beltway Bandits, which are all of the aid, private aid contractors that surround Washington, uh, that's they're gonna keep flowing money into that. And so it's probably not gonna change that much. I personally, you talked about relevance. I think that is the most important thing here. One of the things that comes out of our daily newsletter that you and I put together is how diverse the relationship is, how much there is going on from culture to music to business to infrastructure. I mean, the scale of what's happening is really what takes my breath away every day when I'm putting this newsletter together. I don't think we have that same breadth of engagement in the US-Africa relationship. Uh, we don't have an American version of Star Times who's bringing in, uh, you know, that kind of technology. We also don't have the infrastructure development and all the trade that's happening on so many different ways from, you know, consumer goods all the way up to Huawei and high tech products. 
And so that relevance, I think, is really key. Interestingly enough that you bring up that word relevance, that's the same challenge we see here in Vietnam as well, that the presence of U.S. culture just isn't that prominent anymore. So the soft power that Josh talked about is really much more difficult to break through because people are consuming social media content from their own personal networks. And then here in Asia, for example, the content that young people are consuming is largely from Korea or from Japan. It's not Hollywood content. And so in that sense, I think there is a big challenge to American soft power and that relevance factor. And we can't fall back on the comfort of the fact, well, we always have Beyonce because really, as we've talked about in previous shows, Nollywood now is a real competitor to Hollywood in terms of mindshare. Yeah, I think you know, kind of. I think the one exception to all of that is is the the engagement between between African American culture and Africans, and then more specifically between also diaspora populations, um, African diaspora population in the, in the U.S. Um, and and you know, the kind of countries in in Africa, and some African countries have been particularly smart at how they leverage this. So Ghana, Ghana in particular, Ghana is, is Ghana, amazing, yes. in, in, you know, kind of in the way that they just pull in kind of African American influences, may you know, kind of get them to go to Ghana and then you know, beam out that that messaging. Um, that is very effective, and and that is something that is a real asset, I think, in in the U.S. Africa relationship that doesn't exist in the U.S. China. I mean, in the the China-Africa relationship. Absolutely. It's one of the reasons why I put out there that these people-to-people ties and leveraging the diaspora and the African-American historical ties is going to be, if they take advantage of it, but for the most part, they haven't really leveraged it. What we've seen in Ghana has been from the Ghanaian side and then from civil society in the United States, but it's not really happening at the governmental level. But as you pointed out, and as we all agree, that really engaging the African-American population to help become that lobby group in Washington, and also to promote African studies in universities across the United States to broaden the awareness of, of, of African issues within American universities, I think would also help as well. We're not seeing much of that at all. To be honest with you, my expectations uh, are quite modest as to what we're going to see. I don't think that it's going to change very much. I think the mood in Washington towards China remains hostile. And as a result of that, I think the global outlook towards China remains equally skeptical from the United States. So whatever Africans are asking for, I think we should cut it in maybe in half. And we might get that, and we should be lucky if we get that. So that'll do it for this edition of the show. Again, a reminder... Copas and I are putting out a newsletter that we're very proud of. Our reader community is growing. We would love for you to join it. If you've gotten this far in the podcast, you will definitely enjoy the newsletter. It's basically a deep dive every single day on what's going on in the China-Africa, China-Mediterranean, and China-Middle East space. So we would really love to have you join us. Just go to ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe, and you can sign up there. We give you a nice free trial period just to check it out, see what you think about it. And then if you don't like it, cancel any time. But if if you do, we hope that you'll stay on to continue as a subscriber. So we'll be back again next week with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. For Kobus van Staden in Johannesburg, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadinsky or Eric at eOlander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com. <laughs>